You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. So I, I thought in my own mind, okay, there's a chance that you could lose all your money. That could happen. Or there's a chance that the stock could go to five bucks. I got a choice between losing 19 cents or making five bucks. At some point in time, when there is a, a value proposition offered up that's so asymmetric, you have to say yes. By the way, I was wrong then too. The stock didn't go to five bucks, it went to 19 bucks. Welcome back to Money Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, joined with my friend and co-host, Brian Lenny of JuniorStockReview.com, touching base with Rick Rule of Rule Investment Media. Rick, welcome back onto the show. I think it was 18 months ago or so, you said that 2022 would be the year of the exploration stocks. Was that an accurate prediction? <laughs> That's the problem with predictions when people get you to make them. <laughs> uh, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I have to remember that young persistent questioners like you are always a hazard to my reputation and avoid you like the plague. <laughs> uh, clearly, 2022 wasn't the year of the exploration stock. Uh, unless you happen to be short the basket, uh, which I wasn't. I do think that it is a year where some of the exploration activities that were begun a decade ago began to bear fruit, which was part of the discussion that, that we had. Investors expect immediate gratification when they put money up for exploration, but the truth is district exploration is usually a decade-long affair. So if you look as an example at all of the money that's gone into Abitibi and the Canadian Shield, as an example, uh, the beginnings of the success uh, in names like, let's say, Kennerland uh, or Great Bear before that are beginning to be felt 10 years hence. Uh, certainly, the pace of exploration wasn't enough to excite the market, and the market didn't have any external stimulus whatsoever, despite this fact, the fact that the stocks, by historical standards, at least the better ones, were attractively priced for the first time in a very long time. Rick, when you look back over your investing career, four decades at this, where consistently did you find the most mispriced value in the junior resource stocks? Well, in time, uh, which is to say that these are cyclical businesses. When the industry's out of favor, it's attractively priced. And nobody has the balls to be in it. <laughs> Jocular phrase intended. When the industry is in favor and everybody's feeling confident, the prices are lousy. I, The most egregious example of that, I guess, was uh, would have been 1998, I guess. Uh, I was able to buy shares of tanky mining uh, which owned at that point in time the biggest undeveloped copper deposit in the world, Tanke Fungarumi, and was backed by the most successful development family in the world, the Lundines. It had 30 cents a, a share cash in it, and it was selling for 19 cents a share. The market was paying me 11 cents a share to buy the biggest copper deposit in the world and the Lundines. Now, there were challenges. Nobody cared about copper. Uh, but that was okay. You know, people liked the lights to go on, so I knew copper would come back. People hated Congo uh, for good reason. So I, I thought in my own mind, okay, there's a chance that you could lose all your money. That could happen. Or there's a chance that the stock could go to five bucks. I got a choice between losing 19 cents or making five bucks. At some point in time, when there is a uh, 
a value proposition offered up that's so asymmetric, you have to say yes. By the way, I was wrong then too. The stock didn't go to five bucks. It went to 19 bucks. And you sold at five. Uh, I, I sold uh, I, I sold some before five. You know, if you, if you, first of all, if you give me that kind of quantum reward, but also if you offer up something as risk as risky uh, as a fixed asset in a place where there's AIDS, Ebola, malaria, warlords, <laughs> you do have to take some money off the table on the way. Okay. So if the best opportunities come when you understand the macro and the cyclicality of everything, but you make the most money when you get it right and you understand the micro of a specific company, do you have the macro people looking out for you and they're saying, hey, Rick, focus on this commodity in the next year? I don't anymore. Uh, you know, I used to pay attention to that. I don't know how to do technical analysis, but I used to listen to these guys in some vain sense that I would understand timing. Uh, if my watch list is 150 stocks, which effectively it is, if 50 of them, are selling at substantial discounts to what I think what I think they're worth. The market's cheap enough. Uh, the best macro to me is expressed by the discrepancy between what I think something is worth and what the rest of the world thinks it's worth. It's very unusual for me to think that something is worth more than the market does, because I'm an old lender. I'm a seventy-year-old skeptic. But when you have a situation like that where my greed is fired more than my fear. Then I decide that the macro is on my side. Remember, Bill, that in my experience, and I'm talking about speculative stocks now, the average hold period, we've talked about this before, for a 10-bagger, in my experience, has been five years. And in most cases, that 10-bagger exposes me to a 50% share price decline once or twice during the five years that I hold it. So what happens to me is that I'm likely to hold a stock through a cycle, <laughs> sometimes too, uh, with all kinds of macro events getting in the way. What matters most to me is the juxtaposition between price to value. That's what matters most to me. I realize that most of your viewers look at themselves as long-term value-oriented investors. That's because they lie to themselves. Uh, most of them have trauma holding stock over a long weekend. And the reason for that is that most of them don't have the courage of their convictions around the value. Without having some sense of value, and by the way, you're never going to get it right, the price information is a floating abstraction. Money is made on the juxtaposition of price to value and increasing values when you've already paid the price. That's what it's all about. Nothing else matters. Hmm. Brian, follow up. Thanks, Bill. Um, <clears throat> slide eight from West Vault Mining Slide Deck. They have a quote from you, and it's asking you uh, if you like their strategy as a, as a junior miner. And your quote is, I do. It will take time, but limiting dilution on a proven deposit is a good strategy. One needs to be tolerant of boredom. But I am if the alternative is terror. And it's a great quote. Um, my question is, is there a time limit though? Like, is there an amount of time that, and it's not, it can be about Westfall, um, but just generally speaking, is there a time limit to that that strategy? No. Okay. I'm a psychology. The, the determinant factor is uh, opportunity cost. If I own Westfall because they're not diluting and I think the gold price is going to go up, let's say for argument's sake that I own $10,000 worth of Westfall. I have to ask myself every week, what's the highest and best use of $10,000? The name West Vault's irrelevant. 
some portion of my portfolio I personally want in gold optionality because I think the gold price is going higher. But if the oil price were to fall back to $20 again, I would throw gold optionality in the bay uh, because there was a higher, better use of my funds. Many people uh, seem to get psychic satisfaction out of this game, which is to say, if they own Westfault and the price goes down, it hurts their feelings. There are ways to hurt my feelings, but that's not one. Uh, so the time associated with the holding is only a function of the opportunity cost if there is a better use of the same capital. Okay. Well, see, I guess my thought was this, you know, Westfall, I forget the price that he quoted me for the gold price that they were looking at to start to develop. And I just thought to myself, you know, it seems that, you know, you've got all the other risks that are associated with the junior mining company, but then I've learned that I've lost money in the past getting too wrapped up in trying to gauge how far our metal price is going to go. And um, I, again, I forget what Westfeld's price is, uh, but to me, you know, it almost felt like I was making more of a speculation on the, the gold price than I was on you know management's ability to execute. Uh, the risk, I, I think, is threefold. The greatest risk, as we've discussed before in your show, is located to the left of your right ear <laughs> and to the right of your left ear. If you believe in optionality, how do you achieve it? So you want to limit extraneous risk, which is to say you want to limit political risk, permitting risk, and importantly, you want to limit dilution risk. What happens over time is that the company has to issue shares to fund their GNA, and by issuing shares, they dilute the size of the prize relative to the shares that you own. Specifically, uh, in an optionality play, the management team has to be willing to be paid appropriately for what they do. In optionality, you do nothing. Management teams don't like to be paid appropriately for doing nothing. So most optionality plays aren't optionality plays in the sense that they continually dilute your share in the optionality to support their lifestyle. In yeah. the case of Westfault Mining, you have uh, adult supervision in the form of Peter Palmetto at the top. Uh, he throws around nickels as though they were manhole covers. Uh, this is a deposit that I owned before he had it in Vista, so I know the deposit well. Uh, I know how big it is, how big it isn't. <laughs> I know the fact that my stripping ratio is sub-zero because at the top yeah. of a hill. Uh, I understand the climate. I understand the metallurgy. Uh, my non-price risks are low. For me, it's an interesting optionality play. I would like this deposit more if it were bigger. You know, normally I want a million or a million and a half ounce deposit. I want a deposit where if the price goes up, somebody has to buy it. This isn't one of those. But in many senses, this is a good gold holding strategy. Before your times, both of you, uh, in the latter part of the decade of the 80s, the early part of the decade of the 90s, there was no expectation on anybody's part that commodity prices were going to go up. And so... Optionality, which is to say buying deposits in the ground that weren't economic at that point in time, but would be economic during periods of higher uh, prices, were free. I mean, they were free when we formed and financed Silver Standard and Pan American Silver. We were buying proven ounces in the ground for five or 10 cents an ounce. Were they economic at $4 an ounce? No, but we thought they would be at 10 or 15. And the cover charge, to play in that 
metaphorical nightclub, investment nightclub, was extremely low. Then after we did those, you know, after the old Vista went 20 for one and Silver Standard went 40 for one and Pan American went 50 for one and, uh, you know, Rudy Frank's thing, Seabridge went 20 for one. All of a sudden, optionality became all a rage and people were overpaying for optionality while at the same time building salary machines around optionality uh, stories. Uh, and so you couldn't play the game anymore. You know, you just couldn't play the game uh, on a on a net present value versus cost of funds basis. Uh, you were overpaying for the option at the same time that the management team's lifestyles uh, were diluting your your interest in the option. Um, now we're somewhere in the middle. Now there are optionality stories that people are attracted to, say uranium where often uh, you're paying, because of certainty, uh, a higher premium for the optionality. But there are uh, still, I think, uh, in the gold and silver sector, uh, some reasonable optionality plays. The problem is that with the exception of uh, West Vault, uh, the general and administrative charges are pretty high around them. Rick, regarding pounds in the ground, when it comes to uranium, I had a, a uranium blockchain company email me and ask for an interview. And they said they would pay me in uranium, that I would have tokenized uranium in the ground. But I, I was actually, <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, have you heard about this movement? No, you know, I, I mean, I, I get proposed all kinds of, I'm oblivious to crypto scams because I don't do things I don't understand. Uh, and... <laughs> I don't but but what crypto. happened if blockchain is linked to pounds in the ground that may or may not be economical? <laughs> you know, <laughs> selling um, at a discount to spot too, Rick. Selling yeah, at a discount we, to the spot price. And, and let's assume that you have to take delivery, physical possession. Probably a bad idea. Uh, you have to cross uh, the ocean, get a yeah. permit with my own pickaxe. Yeah. yeah I definitely. mean, right now, right now, people who like the uranium business can buy Sprott Physical Uranium Trust at a six percent discount. Uh, you can get a discount to real uranium, <laughs> uh, you know, held in good storage and deliverable at any of four locations worldwide. Why on earth would somebody want to buy a token uh, around a uranium deposit that may or may not be there, that may or may not ever be mined? It's difficult for me to understand just how greedy and how stupid people can be. On the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, what is the exit strategy? That's the one objection that I hear people say, like, oh, are they going to have to sell it to a sovereign when you have that much uranium? That, that's a problem that I hope to face. Okay. Can Can you imagine a circumstance where we bought 55 million pounds of uranium and the uranium price doubled? And because uranium was in short supply, a sovereign had to bid us a premium to spot? I mean, in the case of Sprott, it would be unpleasant because they lose the fee stream. For me personally, as a large shareholder, the fact that the price of something doubled and then somebody had to pay me a premium is not an unattractive proposition. What you find is if you have a good entrance, the exit takes care of itself. But it's a new exit. It's, for the sector, it's a new exit, though, right? You would at least give that. It, it's not like the Precious Metals Trust. It's a little different. Uh, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, for obvious reasons, is not redeemable. Uh, you cannot mercifully uh, send your shares to Sprott and have them send you back drums of U308 for storage in your basement for fairly obvious reasons. 
the trust is not set up to self-liquidate. The trust the, the trust employee, Sprott, has a long history of being investor-friendly. And while I suspect that the, the uh, premium that somebody would have to pay to Spot would be fairly substantial, at some point in time, uh, I, I think you would, it, and I'm being speculative now, if the situation were to occur, if the offer was so compelling, uh, I suspect that that would be the exit. I think what's much more likely is that people who want to play synthetically or participate synthetically in uh, what I suspect will be a 20-year market for uranium, the lowest risk, not to say it isn't risky, least volatile way to play it, and certainly the cheapest way to play it in terms of ongoing uh, expense is the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. My suspicion is that it'll be around 20 years from now. But if we saw a circumstance, remember, as far as we know, this is the largest holding of physical uranium, deliverable physical uranium on the planet. If we experienced real shortages, if the growth in uranium demand that we see occurring over the next 10 years with new capacity builds continues, and if there were political constraints in, say, Kazakhstan around the delivery of new uranium, it might be that the 55 million pounds of U308 in the trust became a strategic asset. Uh, and it might be that somebody would have to pay a premium to obtain that much uranium. Do you think the trust allows the hedge funds to manipulate the uranium price more? So, for example, I've been advised that, Bill, if a lot of these funds buy these junior uranium stocks, then they can use the physical trust to run up the price, offload their juniors, and then offload their their uh, trust shares. You know, whenever I hear these sort of conspiracy things, I'm always struck by the fact that at least all of the conspirators I know aren't smart enough to pull it off. Uh, the idea that they could do that is sort of like the idea that a drunk in a bar uh, could make a four-bank shot playing pool. Uh, possible, but unlikely. Uh, I, I think it's more likely that what might happen is that somebody would have the courage to either be short the sprot and long the physical, or long the physical and short the Sprott. Certainly, we saw that with regards to Sprott physical silver. When Sprott physical silver uh, was, uh, when there was a price discrepancy between the physical silver market and the price for Sprott physical silver, uh, somebody would short the silver, buy the Sprott, tender the Sprott for silver, and use that to fill their shorts. And they would do that on price discrepancy that was price discrepancies that were as skinny as three percent. They can't do that to us in the uranium business for fairly obvious reasons because, <laughs> because it's not redeemable. Uh, well, my next question: um, In the next ten years, will there be such a thing as a senior precious metals only producer? Um, in your view, what are the implications? Positive, negative, indifferent? I think that the market will continue to. Um, price, pure play, precious metals producers higher. I think very large companies like Barrick, uh, in order to continue to be significant gold producers, will have to produce it in conjunction with copper. Big undeveloped, cop you know, big undeveloped mineral deposits worldwide are copper deposits with byproduct gold and, gold and silver credits. And I think right now, if Barrick had Reiko Deacon production, particularly if they had been able to acquire Freeport, 
that the majority of their gold production <laughs> would be a byproduct. <laughs> I don't think that the market will pay a premium for that. Uh, but I think that companies that are more interested in return on capital employed will be byproduct companies. And companies that are interested in selling at a higher market capitalization relative to free cash flow will be pure plays. I I I love the pure plays in drag. Uh, the Franco Nevadas, as an example, that have large oil and gas royalty revenues, <laughs> which are priced as gold revenues. Uh, that's having your cake and eating it too. I'm not <laughs> sure how it works, but as a shareholder, I sure love it. Or uh, cobalt for Wheaton, right? Yeah, I just I, I just love that. That's quite the analogy you gave there, Rick. <laughs> so uh, Canadian securities, they the authorities now allow the small raises up to $5 million or up to $10 million without a, a prospectus and no hold on the stock. Is this a good or bad thing? Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. The regulators for years have protected investors from themselves, uh, which meant that the investors came to believe that they were actually getting uh, protection from the regulators. Such notable successes as Briex, uh, of course, uh, caused that faith to be questioned. The bottom line is that an investor needs to protect himself or herself. And to the extent that they make capital raises more efficient, of course, they raise the risk of scamsters in the junior stock market. But that risk has always been all present. And having investors understand that the regulator who cares more about their portfolio is themselves is in and of itself a valuable thing. Uh, these, in effect, at the market raises, uh, which is really what they are, they're formalized at the market raises, are absolutely wonderful tools for legitimate operators to raise capital when it's available cheaply. In a capital-intensive business, lowering your, lowering your cost of capital is half the fight. Will there be abuses? <laughs> epic, epic, epic abuses. And the retail investor who allows his or her stupidity and envy deserves to be relieved of their money. Uh, James Grant has a great quote. He says, uh, risk is most threatening when it's least obvious and least threatening when it's most obvious. At this moment in time, uh, I think most investors would say that they see the risk you know, everywhere. Um, therefore, does it make it least threatening or less threatening? Uh, yes. Uh, I, uh, well, the, I would say the other way around. I think that investors perceive less risk than there is. Okay. I think the risk of higher interest rates uh, at, at once increase the cost of capital and lower the value of capitalized distributions, which is to say dividends, which impacts takeover. I think the Canadian markets in particular are poised, uh, are suggesting that there's no political risk in Canada. Uh, that's a different Canada that I know. Um, you know, I, I, I just went through the foreign property tax in British Columbia and, and the idea that that isn't a xenophobic, risky institution is crazy. Uh, so I would suggest that there are more risks than the market is taking into account. What keeps me in the market is, I think, absent a global recession or depression, that across a whole range of mineral commodities, we're going to experience supply shortages. By the way, I'm not saying that we're not going to have a recession. <laughs> I think that's a risk too. 
But when I look, never mind electric vehicles, when I look at the likely demand for copper, if we assume that copper demand flatlines from here, we're going to have supply shortages. We're going to have supply shortages in five years. Who knows what happens if the demand for copper increases? So what keeps me in the market is that particular opportunity. But I think most investors underestimate risks. Let me throw out another risk that uh, <laughs> the market will hate me for talking about. Uh, and that's the risk of larceny in management teams. Uh, it knows no bounds, of course. Uh, but very recently, I've had occasion to look at about 150 companies that I own or have an interest in, in terms of their management contracts on a change of control. You know, you think that if you have a market cap of $200 million and somebody takes it over for $500 million, that that $300 million is yours. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. There's one Canadian junior that mercifully I don't own that has a fairly attractive deposit, a deposit that they've had real challenges permitting. The change of control fee to officers and directors is five times their average remuneration including bonuses going back five years, which means that the management team has an active self-interest in seeing the price go lower so that it gets taken over. Oh, by the way, they don't own much stock. There's another case where an investment banker in Canada who shall go nameless for his own protection, his clients would hate him, uh, saw a $6 million takeover, a tiny, tiny, tiny amalgamation where the existing management team walked out with a million eight of the six. Uh, so the real risk that listeners to shows like yours, microcap shows have, I would say the predominant risk is uh, the idiocy, or after that, the larceny of the management teams that run their money. And I think that that's way, way, way understated. Uh, penny stock speculators look at the 10 to 1 potential, and they forget to do the work to understand the probability of realizing that potential. If the management team has a material incentive in seeing the share price go down, likely they can pull that off. Rick, on that note, I always hated when management teams would destroy value, not just because of the cyclical nature of the industry, but they do something and they have technical failure. For example, Red Eagle Mine. When that mine went down in Columbia, I remember the share price cratered, and I think they raised at 60 cents from a group of investors. And then at 20 cents, they issued themselves a ton of options. And it was at that point that I just sold because it's like, you're going to reward yourself for uh, cutting the share price by two thirds. <laughs> Bill, you want a friend on House Street or Bay Street? Buy a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dog eat dog world, huh? Yeah, it's rough. Uh, you know, I... It's interesting when I negotiate private placements, uh, which is something I enjoy doing. You know, I'll go to a management team and I'll say, so it's likely that I'm financing an exploration effort that'll take two years, two and a half years. The honest ones agree with me. And I say, so what used to me is a year and a half warrant? If the circumstance that will add the value will take two and a half years to occur, and you're giving me the piece of an upside for a year and a half, what you're really doing is you're not giving me a warrant at all you're giving me sort of a pass on getting lucky in a market. If a year and a half is a relevant duration for a warrant, why don't you limit your options to a year and a half? 
why shouldn't the option time frame be consistent with the warrant time frame? I think we've talked about this before on your show, of course. And then they always come back and say, oh, well, that's an unfair expectation. Why? I say, well, we work here. You're an investor. I say, oh, that's an interesting concept. You work there five days a week, but my money works there seven days a week. So I should get seven twelfths of the benefit. If that's the case, I should get a six and a half year warrant. You should get a five-year option. And also, have you noticed the temerity with which they lower the exercise price of the of the options? But for some reason, they almost no never lower the exercise price of my warrants unless they're broke. And the warrant exercise can fund their lifestyle for another 18 months. By the way, I'm not bitter about any of this. I understand the game. Uh, I just want your listeners to understand the game. You act like you own the company, Rick. You're talking like you own the company. You know what share ownership represents to me is ownership of a fractional part of a business. I saw it recently too, Rick, one egregious one where they canceled out their far out of the money options and then issued 10 year options at the now lower price. So, I didn't even know they could do 10 year options. Yeah, this, this, yeah. See, seen this one. It wasn't a mining teaching, company, but it was a Canadian small cap. A young guy's teaching an old guy new tricks. I didn't know 10 year options were even feasible. That's, that's outrageous. <laughs> but I mean, you, you invented the five year warrant, though, from what I understand, right? You're the father of the five year warrant. <laughs> Per the negotiations I, you just laid out. <laughs> I've been I've been maybe the roughest, myself and Marion Katusa have been the roughest on insisting on it. Uh, you remember Nancy Reagan when she was first lady. Uh, she, <laughs> she said the, the answer to teen pregnancy was just saying no. And so I employ the Nancy Reagan defense to short options. I just say no. <laughs> I parenthetically keep my legs crossed so as not to provide access to my wallet. Mm. Rick, you're doing a silver symposium coming up. Your uranium boot camp. Sorry, you're doing a silver boot camp online one day, uh, $99 for the day. The uranium one I know was a hit. You had some unique content. Uh, why should listeners sign up for this? Well, I think, first of all, anybody who attended the uranium boot camp will understand why. We gave $500 worth of benefit for $99. By the way, $99, the risk is mine. Uh, if you attend the Silver Boot Camp or any other Rick Rule educational product, there's a hundred percent money back guarantee. Don't screw me on it. But if you come to the if you come to the event, you didn't get your money's worth. I'll give you your money back. That's the first reason. There's no educational product I know in the market like that. But more importantly, what's the upside? First of all, an overview of the silver market, like we did an overview of the uranium market. There are many people who have invested in the silver market because of the narrative, and they actually don't understand the physical market. They don't understand that most new silver is a byproduct of other metals. They don't understand the importance of scrap in the market. They don't understand the interplay between paper silver, be it the futures market or silver ETFs of the Sprott Physical Silver Trust on the silver market. They don't have access to, which they will in our conference, living legends discussing how they built multi-billion dollar silver companies and how the lessons that they learned building those companies are instrumental for investors uh, who want to find the multi-billion dollar silver companies of the future. They will be able to hear uh, portfolio managers who have been primarily involved in picking silver companies for 20 years, not Johnny-come-latelys. Uh, we can't hope to give you everything that you need to know 
about investing and speculating in silver in eight and a half hours. But we can, in every case, for a beginning investor or an experienced investor, give you eight hours, eight and a half hours that will give you the fundamentals of filling in your knowledge and allow you to outcompete 95% of the people that you compete in the market with who didn't attend the boot camp. And that will be accessible via replay too, because eight and a half hours is a long time to sit in front of your computer. You will have access to the material for six months after the conference. Uh, and I, I mean, I know with the uranium boot camp, and I put the damn thing on. Uh, I had to refresh my memory on occasion. You know, particularly, I, I don't know if you remember that, the overview of the uranium market by WMC was just wonderful. Uh, and so I have refreshed my memory with that on several occasions, despite the fact that, in effect, I grew up in the industry. And while we're talking about your conferences, you're still are you staying in Florida for your own personal conference in person this year? Bill, as you know, the attendees own the conference. I'm just the bookkeeper. Uh, we polled the attendees, both the new ones who came to this conference and the ones who came to prior conferences, and the vote was 58-42, Boca Raton in favor of Vancouver. Uh, importantly, I think that South Florida is easier for people from both South America and Europe to get to. So the foreign attendees to the conference were more like 100% in favor of Boca. Now, you know, Boca Raton in July is not my idea of a good time climactically. But what we learned, interestingly, is that Boca Raton in July increased the attendance. In Vancouver in July, there's the occasional tendency to play hooky. Walk up Robson Street, grab a beer on a patio, and watch pretty girls to go by. When it's 95 degrees outside and 95% relative humidity, the attraction of listening to, to uh, presentations or learning about companies is very high when it's, <laughs> when it's compared to being outside. And I'm delighted that my attendees took content over weather. That's a great point. Vancouver is beautiful in July. I've been there it's several wonderful. times. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's I, I also of note, uh, you know, Boca... The resort that we held that conference at is spectacular, uh, and the winter rate is $1,050 a room. There's a, mile, there's a half a mile of beach. There's all these wonderful facilities. Because we deliver a lot of people to them in July, they turn that same, route to our atten that same room to our attendees for $290. Uh, so, you know, the old value hunter in me uh, understands that simple arithmetic. I juxtapose 290 against 1050 and I can stomach July. Well, one last thing before you go, your YouTube channel, you've been putting out content. Some of it doesn't even get as much views as when you go on somebody else's show, but it, you're sharing four decades of experience. Maybe give a little teaser as to what you're offering there. Well, two things, really. Uh, anybody who likes my content or likes me talking on your content can learn more about what I do and what I know with regards to their own portfolio. If you go to Rural Investment Media and list your natural resource stocks, I'll personally rank them 1 to 10. If you care about what private placements I'm participating in with my own money and you're accredited, write placements in the comment line. Uh, the content that you're speaking about is the Rural Classroom. People have asked me for 30 years to write a book. And for various reasons, I decided not to do it. What I'm going to do is the equivalent of writing a book. I'm going to deliver 60 or 70 half-hour-long presentations about various aspects of investing in natural resources 
And these will be video. You won't have to read the book. You can watch me, for better or for worse, tell it to you. Uh, so my book is going to be free. It's going to be online. It's going to be in 30 or 40-minute digestible slices. Uh, I think there's eight or nine segments out there. In fact, I just recorded a segment today with Albert Liu uh, on understanding and investing in uh, advanced uh, or um, successful efforts exploration. Uh, it is interesting, as you say, that some of the best information I give, like the tax implications in mining, things where I know a lot, don't seem to interest investors. Uh, but that's okay. You know, the truth is that hopefully enough people will get enough information in videos which were immediately more interesting to them that they will have the incentive to go to videos that are perhaps less enthralling. Nobody cares much about tax, uh, but are of greater importance. And you're leaving a legacy too, Rick, you know, a, a legacy beyond your own lifespan that people will be able to benefit from, benefit from I think. Uh, Bill, that's important. I look back at the mentors that I had in my life uh, and the incredible generosity that they had with me, making myself a better investor in my late teens all the way through about age 30. And the extent that I didn't feel an obligation to pay it forward to the broad market I think dishonors the legacy and the debt that I owe to those spectacular mentors that I had the benefit of listening to. Well, thank you for being a mentor to me. And I know I speak for Brian as well when we say thank you. And for the thousands that will listen to this episode, Rick, uh, thanks for coming on the show and thanks for all you do for resource investors. Well, thanks, thanks for hosting me and thanks for being uh, great and applied students to my mentorship. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.